0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and at ABC Listen. We celebrate the work of mostly ordinary Australians when we have the honours list twice a year, but are we really building a virtuous society? That is coming up. Pope Francis is fighting on three fronts, recover from serious surgery, bring about peace between Russia and Ukraine, and tell the trolls on media to quit it, and that last one might be the hardest job of all. As he recuperates, Francis is dispatching an envoy to Kiev, and he's warning Catholics how to conduct themselves on Facebook and Twitter. Claire Giangrave is Rome editor for the Religion News Service. She told me first about the Pope's health because he's working from his hospital bed.
0: We are told that he's back at work after this operation that he had to have for an incisional hernia, which was causing him recurring pain. We're keeping an eye on him, but the Pope is 86 years old and it can be tasking to head 1.2 billion Catholics around the world.
1: Is he generally, though, in fairly robust health?
0: When it comes to Vatican communications, it's very difficult to get a real handle on how things are. We haven't had a picture of Pope Francis yet since the operation. And we do know that he has had health problems in the past. He was in the hospital in March. He was in the hospital in July of 2021, where he got the original operation that caused the complications we see today. I guess physically his body is aging, but mentally this Pope is not showing any signs of slowing down.
1: And nor would he want to, because there's a lot of unfinished business. I want to ask you about a very pressing piece of business. And one thing that is sure to keep him going is this papal effort to end the war between Russia and Ukraine. He recently sent Cardinal Matteo Zuppi, who's a very well-respected diplomat. He actually does have a solid record. He can take a big share of the credit for ending a conflict in Mozambique back in the 1990s. But this peace initiative is not over. What happened when Cardinal Zupi went to Kyiv recently?
0: Cardinal Zupi went to Kyiv on what was a secret mission initially. But the hope, what was said to us by the Vatican, is that it was supposed to be about listening. It was supposed to be about manifesting and showing closeness to the Ukrainian people. Now, This was extremely important because Pope Francis's view of the possibility for peace in the conflict really does not exist without both Ukraine and Russia coming to sit together at the table. And it takes a very Vatican approach where really peace can only be obtained through some degree of compromise. Now, whether that is really the path towards peace in this case, I'll leave it to the experts. But that is very much the Vatican and Pope Francis's view. So Zuppi's job in Ukraine was really about showing the Ukrainian people and its president that the Vatican is willing to listen to their needs. A lot of Ukrainians felt that Pope Francis's stance of listening and openness also towards Moscow and President Putin were deeply offensive and hurtful. And so this was an initial move of showing that, no, the Vatican is actually trying to keep both doors open. Whether this will actually work or not, I don't know. Some people at the Vatican that I've spoken to were very sceptical that really the Vatican has enough international strength to pull this off and that maybe there are better people, better nations that are more suited to do this. But we'll see.
1: This is only one half of the peace mission, though. I don't think Cardinal Zuppi has gone yet to Moscow. What's happening on that front, Claire?
0: We're being told by Russian authorities that there has been no clear request for Cardinal Zuppi to go to Moscow. It has been a dream of Pope Francis to be the first pope to set foot in Russia. And it really would be a coronation of Vatican diplomacy efforts beyond the Iron Curtain for really decades. Whether it's likely, very, very unlikely. Whether Zupi might make it there, it remains to be seen. You think the Vatican is cagey with communication sometimes. I mean, the Kremlin can be another (laughs) really difficult to understand. Yeah, just a bit. You know, one thing is telling is that when Pope Francis heard about the news of the Russian aggression in Ukraine, the first thing he did was break protocol, run down, get in a car, and go himself to the Russian embassy to the Holy See. That was a gesture that I think will not be forgotten. Mm. It shows that while other people were perhaps, other nations were closing the door for that dialogue, the first thing that this Pope did was to go and initiate that dialogue immediately. But it is a very thorny and complicated situation, as we all know, and who knows whether Pope Francis has the clout to do it.
1: It would be hard, I would suspect, though, Claire, for Moscow to say no to the Pope, to turn away a papal envoy. That would be Moscow essentially saying this is the most, let us say, even-handed of mediators coming to meet us, and we're not interested. It would be pretty hard for Moscow to say that, surely.
0: Again, the way Putin and his cabinet think about things is, is really beyond my understanding, I'm sure. But one thing I would say in this respect is that the Catholic Church doesn't have a tremendous power in Russia. There are not a lot of Catholics in Russia. The Pope's influence in Russia is not so strong. And Pope Francis has also created some tension with the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. He called him a sort of Putin's altar boy the last time they spoke during a Zoom call at the Vatican. There are still some issues that need to be addressed that would make it quite difficult, I think, for Cardinal Zuppi to go there. If Zupi does make it to Moscow, that would be a great victory. Yeah. For Vatican diplomacy.
1: Yeah, I mean, Zuppi, it's worth remembering, did not bring peace to Mozambique overnight. It was a long process. Do I mm-hmm. suspect, uh, Claire, that there's going to be much more shuttle diplomacy on the part of Cardinal Zuppi, uh, representing with the imprimatur of Francis back and forth to Kiev and maybe to Moscow?
0: Absolutely. This is well beyond the middle of it. A lot of what happens with the Vatican is not being shown on Twitter or on cameras. A lot of the groundwork of Vatican diplomacy happens with humanitarian aid. So there are people on the ground, nuns, priests, missionaries, Catholic organizations that are there helping, bringing a presence in those places, and then all the way up to the negotiating table. So, really, it's a much broader approach that cannot just be reduced by this single mission, which has sort of become the face of Vatican efforts, but it's really not even close to everything that is being done to try and and mediate this conflict.
1: Claire, I noticed you mentioned Twitter there, which um, leads me to ask you about another conflict, this one within the Catholic Church, but I can assure you it's one that hundreds of millions of people around the world can relate to, and that is the appalling hostility on social media. Pope Francis recently issued a statement on how Catholics should engage with the online world. In essence, what did he say?
0: It's a very long document. It's 20 pages, but it really does bring together a lot of the considerations that Pope Francis has made and really that the Vatican has made concerning how do Christians approach social media? It goes from just being a good neighbor, (laughs) being nice to people, to also thinking about how do you witness your faith in social media? It really incarnates in a way Pope Francis's vision of how to be a good Christian even on the street. It's not about proselytism or trying to force people to come and share your opinion. It's not about being hostile. It's about encounter. It's about following the example of the Good Samaritan. That is the example that he's trying to set. So essentially, the document really tried to touch on all the issues and a lot of things that we already know. For example, that it's really easy to fall into a tunnel where you just have one you know, belief system surrounding you. On social media and you're never confronted with otherness. And this Pope is all about otherness. It's all about other religions, other cultures, other peoples from far away. So he's trying, and the Vatican is trying to push people to take this into consideration and to step away from the toxicity that you described. Yeah, he
1: actually used, I think, a very biblical injunction, who is my neighbor? I think he reframed it for the Twitter age.
0: Yes, absolutely. And really, if you think that social media can be aggressive, I mean, it's amazing how, for example, Catholic Twitter can be aggressive. There is really a lot of vitriol among those very earnest churchgoers and it can be embarrassing for the church it can really bring forward divisions that already exist in the church and create confusion for believers
1: yeah claire just as we wind up would i be correct in detecting in this statement by the pope a rather coded message this one directed at the pope's right-wing critics on you know various catholic websites and facebook pages and twitter feeds
0: A lot of Vatican observers have interpreted it that way, and it would fall under the way that Pope Francis normally addresses these issues. Again, the document says these aren't guidelines. It's about starting a reflection. It's about urging people to consider the way they behave on social media. This pope has had to deal with an extraordinary number of even influential prelates speaking up against him on social media and criticizing his pontificate and going against his teaching. So issuing this document really, even implicitly, means, hey guys, maybe these are the things you should be thinking about before you you react emotionally on your social media platform, which is very similar to the way priests, for example, would react emotionally on the pundit. Only now they can reach millions of people across countries. It's dangerous.
1: Yeah, Claire, when he said, and I, I'm just quoting here, the problem of polemical and superficial communication is even worse when it comes from bishops, pastors and lay leaders. Do we know who he was referring to there?
0: Well, we will never know officially, but we can guess. We have a pretty informed guess. Yeah, of, have a stab at it. I think in the United States, we know there's been a very vocal opposition. We can think about Bishop Strickland of Texas, for example, who is kind of unique in the way that he's willing to step forward on social media, whether it be on vaccines or about political engagement by Catholics or about communion for pro-abortion politicians. I mean, this bishop has been very outspoken, even questioning the way Pope Francis has been leading the church quite aggressively. Maybe this is directed at people like Strickland or others who have used their platform this way. But normally, when the Pope wants to address these issues, he'll send his people to let bishops know this is not okay. You are creating confusion. You are creating division.
1: Very good to speak with you, Claire Giangrave. She is the Vatican editor for that splendid organisation, the Religion News Service. Claire, thank you for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: And the Religion and Ethics Report is where you'll hear about the links between religion and the news that's shaping the world. Almost 1,200 Australians received honours in the first King's Birthday list. A few retired politicians and corporate executives made the cut, but most recipients are involved in community service, they're working on medical breakthroughs, feeding or housing the poor, fixing the environment, thinking of more than just themselves. But does our political and especially economic system foster enough of that spirit? Political philosopher Adrian Pabst is with the National Institution of Economic and Social Research in Britain. His new paper for the Centre for Independent Studies in Australia is called Bonds of Belonging Renewing Democracy in an Atomised Age.
2: The first thing to say here, Andrew, I think, is that liberalism itself grew out of strong ethical traditions, mostly Christianity, but also over time, Judaism was very influential. You know, there are so many Jewish intellectuals who themselves have really drawn on the biblical tradition for their understanding of how to organize relations within society. But also more recently, other traditions, for instance, mutualism, which is really important because mutualism is at the heart of, for instance, William Beveridge's vision for Britain. Also, up to a point, John Maynard Keynes' vision for the post-war era. And I think what's happened with liberalism, that as it's become more secular, more positivistic, and really very legalistic and utilitarian, it's forgotten some of those more substantive ethical points around virtue, substantive justice, not just restributive justice and so on. So I think there's a whole legacy that liberalism has itself forgotten, but it's not the only tradition. I mean, social democracy and conservatism, the other two big political traditions over the last 200 years or so, have also forgotten those ethical roots. So liberalism is only one case, but maybe the most extreme of those three uh, traditions to forget its ethical roots.
1: You've pointed there to some... Christian roots of liberalism, Christian roots also of social democracy, but in your paper you also talk of uh, Buddhism, the old Hebrew prophets, uh, Confucianism, and of course Plato's own philosophies
2: as well. I suppose I'm really persuaded to a very large extent by the thesis first put forward by the German philosopher and historian Karl Jaspers about the Axial Age, so this period Of about 800 to 200 BC, but then of course also crossing over into our era, where you essentially had a sort of incredible convergence around two ideas. I mean, one idea is that the gods, the divine, is not somehow punishing humanity all the time. It's actually on the side of humanity, it is the idea that it creates the world and everything in it. And in that sense, there is a kind of convergence of the divine and the human. Of course, as Christians, we would say supremely fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But it's also the idea that philosophy and theology were converging, so that faith and reason are not opposed but complementary. And that in the end, what this means in some more concrete terms, is that really we do believe in the intrinsic worth and value of the person. The dignity of the person is really at the heart of Buddhism, Confucianism, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and so on. Even if we understand the exact nature of the dignity of the person a bit differently, that is an incredibly important principle for ethics and for politics and for anthropology. The legacy of the Axial Age really is something we should remember because it is something that world civilizations still have in common to this day. Mm -hmm. And the challenge for us is to try and rebuild societies, both internally but also across borders, around some of these absolutely foundational principles and practices, because secular ideologies alone will not do it. They have not done it and they will not do it.
1: Yeah, you know, I was going to, to raise this because when you speak of a renewed commitment to these ethical values, how do you make them more than abstract? How do you make ethics concrete in public policy? Because your paper really does point to the failures of public policy. You're really about rebuilding the public sphere.
2: One way is to say, let's look at the legacy of the axial age. It isn't at all purely conceptual or abstract. It's actually very practical. Because it's a rejection of absolutist power. Now, that could be an absolutist state or a free market taken to a new extreme since, say, Milton Friedman some 50 years ago. There's a sense that we need limits on power, state power, market power, the power of the individual over others, you know, we really need to get a sense of a balance of power, balance of interest, not to have total anarchy, which in the end leads to tyranny, or indeed to have something that is too much on the side of absolutist power. But then there's also other things we can do. Within businesses, we can rebalance things between capital and labor, so that all parts of business are better represented, work together. There's trust and cooperation, which will reduce things like strike or trying to squeeze out the most of workers to the point where they no longer become productive, they're no longer fulfilled by their jobs. So a better balance of interest within businesses, corporate governance reform along those lines is really, really important to have a more productive, a more creative economy that actually over time will be more profitable as well. Mm -hmm. Short-term profit maximization paradoxically leads to boom and bust. And and boo-and-bust is not even good for business, never mind fathers.
1: What's the nature of this disconnect between raw electoral politics and also economics and culture and civilization? Because in this paper, you point to a real disconnect between those two spheres.
2: I think it's because politics and economics, both as ideologies, systems of power and organization, but also as traditions have really become incredibly impoverished, just concerned with pure factual experience. If there was such a thing as pure facts or pure values, rather than thinking holistically, we can think about politics in terms of who's got power and what are the institutions to regulate it, or we can think of it in terms of an ethical purpose, what is the purpose of politics? And surely the purpose of politics is to bring different interests together to work for something like the common good, and the common good is not abstract. It's very concrete. It's about how you and I as individuals flourish, but also how we flourish together with everyone else in society. So it is about well-being. It is about things well beyond either GDP, who's in power and who can control others. It is about how we become more human based on our talents and vocations, in what institutions and relationships are required. That's what politics is really about. And we've lost sight of the ethical purpose of politics as well as the ethical purpose of the economy.
1: One of the things I always love about your writing and commentary, Adrian, is that um, you spare neither left nor right. And it's not because you're trying to seek a false balance. You really do think that both left and right, as we conceive them, have contributed
2: to this crisis. How? Because they're both buying into things which are complete obstructions from reality. So the left thinks it's all about individual emancipation. That is emancipation not just from oppression and exploitation. And we can see the case for that. we have been terrible forms of, of that in the past and indeed the present. But to the point where it's now a completely isolated individual in society who decides for him or herself what's best taking liberation to the point where actually you're enslaved to this ideology of total equality. Because as much as we believe in equality as Christians, you cannot have total equality. There will be differences in power, in wealth, in states. And the question is not are there differences, but how do we work with that so that we still come to a better outcome in terms of flourishing? The right, on the other hand, believes in total individualism when it comes to the market and thinks the market should be as unconstrained as possible because somehow the market is the vehicle to distribute wealth when we know it can also concentrate wealth. We see it with the tech platforms, we see it with state capitalism. It's simply not working out that way. What both left and right have forgotten is the relational, how people actually only really flourish in strong substantive relations in their neighborhoods, at work across communities and also across nations. They've also forgotten what it really is to put society first, not the state, not the market, but all of the institutions that make up society. That should be at the heart of a proper politics of the common good. And I think left and right are so individualistic because they're so utilitarian They've forgotten that as human beings, we are always already social and political beings.
1: Uh, This is the Religion and Ethics Report uh, with Andrew West, speaking with an old friend of the program, Professor Adrian Pabst, Professor of Politics at the University of Kent. He's also the Deputy Director of the National Institution of Economic and Social Research in the UK. And Adrian's the author of a new paper for the Centre for Independent Studies. It's called Bonds of Belonging, Renewing Democracy in an Atomized Age. Adrian, what nourishes the demagogues, the Trumps, the Bolsonaros in Brazil?
2: It's very clear that they have an incredibly dangerous ideology that they are propagating, you know, a kind of ethno-nationalism, an activism that is totally exclusive, that somehow suggests that one demographic in a country has completely lost out, is the victim of all sorts of things, and needs to be liberated, which is, of course, you know, makes them sound more like Leninists and conservatives but the point is they propagate ideology but there are other things that have fueled the support for them because whilst we can criticize demagogues and we should the problem is why is it that so many voters are voting for them rather than for others and here we can't blame the people you know as Bertrand Brecht, you can't sort of say well if the people get it wrong let's change the people no you need to understand why there are these genuine grievances for millions and millions of our fellow citizens. And the fact is the economic model and the social model that has been dominant for the last 50 years or so has simply not worked. Jobs have been degraded. Pay has stagnated for many, many workers, not just in the public sector, but also elsewhere. Communities are ravaged. There is atomization, as I say in the paper. You know, people are increasingly lonely and isolated. Families have broken down. Communities have been hollowed out. It's simply not working. The liberal order, the liberal consensus that we've had for the last half a century has not delivered for millions. And that is the source of the support for populists. So we may not like populists and demagogues. I certainly don't. But we need to understand why people are voting for them. Mm -hmm. And the way to stop this is by offering them a better economics, a better political model, so that people can be re-enfranchised. It's about cutting off support for the demagogues by dealing with the problems that have led to their rise.
1: They also, to me, seem to feed off what you call a self-loathing, especially in Western societies. What is that self-loathing?
2: Well, I think we are facing a situation where in the name of mindless modernization and a total obsession with progress, as if all progress was good, and I think we see that with technology and climate change, progress can have terrible consequences. But in the name of all of this, we are basically saying our history is just terrible. So many terrible things have happened. All the racism, all the oppression, all the exploitation mean that we should just get rid of our history and start afresh. Of course, that's a complete delusion. You can never undo history. You can never completely ignore it. You need to engage with it. Of course, all of the bad stuff, of course, all of the terrible racism we've had, but also the good stuff. We've also had the abolition of slavery. We've also had civil rights movements led by people like Martin Luther King who fought against all of this but didn't fight against it in the name of identity politics but actually in the name of reconciling Americans with one another. Martin Luther King is the best example of why the left should not be engaging in extreme identity politics. What we have done is we've said our history is so terrible we should just abolish it and hope that we can somehow start afresh. It is incredibly dangerous because it sets people against one another. It basically denigrates all patriots as racists, and it actually just further sows the seeds of yet more division. And when you have division and when you have chaos and anarchy, what will happen is, and we know this from social Darwinism, it's the powerful, it's the wealthy, it's the healthy who will dominate. In a fight of, in a war of all against all, as Hobbes said, it's the powerful who will prevail, not those who are genuinely disadvantaged. What we really need is to revalue citizenship, create bonds so that people can live together much, much better than they currently are.
1: Yeah, You make this very, very interesting point where you say there's a line between productive reassessment of the history of the West, because, you know, you've just said there, you do not deny serious problems, but also between self-hatred. Where is that line? It's increasingly hard to, to
2: find, but there is a line There absolutely is a line. And I think it really has to start with both a question of what makes us human, some of the most fundamental anthropological and ethical questions, but also very concretely, what is the people need and want? And actually, there's a complete coincidence of those things, because what makes us human is things like relationships, families, friends, defined in the broadest possible way. There isn't just one model of the family. There isn't just a nuclear family. There is extended family. There are new forms of love and loyalty and cohabitation that, of course, we need to take very seriously. But there's also the importance of work. Work, again, defined in the broadest sense, not just paid jobs that cope with with energy and food bills and pay our rent. No, jobs that also give us purpose and meaning. There is the importance of community, of associations, again, defined in the broadest possible sense, the way that people associate with one another to get things done that they cannot do on their own and that cannot be done by state or market. There's the importance of national communities and countries. A lot of people still feel quietly patriotic. They don't hate their own country. They don't hate their own history. They know that there's problems, past and present, but they still feel attached to the culture, to the language, to a sense of togetherness, a sense of fellowship that we also saw at moments of COVID when people wanted to help one another in a face with this unprecedented shock. And the state was slow in recognizing all the kind of mutual aid that people wanted to provide. There's international solidarity. Why do we stand with the people of Ukraine? Because they're being invaded by a hostile foreign power. There is such a thing as national, as well as international solidarity, care for our natural environment. You know, there's so many things that people value as intrinsically good. And that's what we need to encourage politics, the reconciliation of estranged interests around the search for these relational goods, things that we can only have together: health, education housing, transport. These are actually relational goods. We can only have them together. You and I can't decide what road system we have or or what the housing situation is. These are things we need to build together. I think it's summed up
1: in the, uh, the words, and you quote them, from Orwell himself, George Orwell, common decency. What in a concrete way does common decency look like today?
2: It starts with the recognition that we are all human persons and hence have intrinsic worth and value, that no one can or should ever be written off, demonized, seen as economically or socially useless. We need to start with the intrinsic value of each and every human person, and then of course recognize that we're capable of vice, of sin as we know as as Christians and other religious people, but also that we're capable of virtue, that we're capable of generosity and loyalty and help and compassion and so on so why don't encourage the better part of our human nature rather than the other part you know we have a system that incentivizes greed and lust and avarice let's have a system that incentivizes just the opposite and then see where we end up we can have an economy that actually works much better for people because we're incentivizing good virtuous behavior rather than vice and and sinfulness so i think there are lots and lots of things we can do here but it has to start with the right anthropology and ethics. And that is that we are social and political beings actually who want to associate with others. We are not by nature, you know, selfish individualists.
1: Yeah. And the lesson I guess too though is not just for those on the right who seek unrestrained material benefit. I mean there is a lesson here on the for those on the left that simply because you wish you were something or you you believe yourself to be something Doesn't make it true.
2: (laughs) Exactly. You know, our identities are not just things we construct and we imagine. Yes, there's an element of creativity and of working out what our talents and vocations are and so on. But, you know, identities are also in, in large part given. We are born into particular families. You know, we don't choose who our parents are or our siblings. We don't choose who we are biologically. Why are we saying to people, your will is now the highest moral principle where your will overrides everything else, biology, history? And the left has to stop thinking that the will is somehow the highest principle. There's the intellect, there is our bodily experience. And these things cannot be overridden by just human volition. It's extremely dangerous it, until it recognizes where this philosophy, if one even call it that, this ideology of will and volition leads. I think the left will continue to be in big trouble.
1: Adrian Pabst, he is a professor of politics at the University of Kent. He's the deputy director of the National Institution of Economic and Social Research in the UK. Adrian is a contributing writer at the New Statesman. We've been talking about a new paper that he has written for the uh, Centre for Independent Studies. It's called Bonds of Belonging, Renewing Democracy in an Atomised Age. Thanks for coming back to the Religion and Ethics Report, Adrian. Thank you so much, Andrew. Always a huge pleasure. And that's it for the show this week. You can find us using the search function at ABC Listen. Thanks to Hong Jiang and Anne-Marie de I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report.